you know what I want, what I really, really want? (laughs) This Spice Girls wannabe tune expresses my life evolution as a classroom teacher to the scholarly world of academia, as an actor of the stage and screen, and then as an arts administrator. Hello, listeners. I'm Dr. Frances McGarry, podcast host of First Online with Friends, There's No Place Like Art. As a senior citizen of a quote-unquote certain age, I continued to seek what I want, what I really, really want. I was inspired by Michelle Yeoh at age 60, the first Asian woman to receive an Oscar for Best Actress and Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. She urged women to, quote, not let anybody ever tell you that you are ever past your prime. Never give up. (laughs) So on that note, my guest today, Pamela S.K. Glasner, also in her 60s, recently earned her master's degree from Harvard University. She is a critically acclaimed published author of fiction and nonfiction, a filmmaker, a playwright, and a social advocate. Welcome, Pamela. Hi. Thank you so much for the opportunity to do this with you. I so admire your work. Gosh, thank you. Okay, so now we're both patting each other on the back. But first of all, Before we start here, congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you. Earning your recent degree from Harvard and then earning numerous film festival awards for your screenplay, Finding Emmaus, an exploration of the treatment and mistreatment of the mentally ill. You know, also among your advocacy causes is conducting lectures on the financial exploitation of the elderly. You express that if you really want to reach people, really reach them, you have to touch their hearts. Art is what does that. And my art is writing. My, your art is writing. So how have the arts guided the path of your artistic projects? The earliest I remember writing something of consequences was when I was About nine or 10 years old, I went to camp and I met this girl that I really liked. She lived in Pennsylvania and I wrote her a letter when I got home, uh, just a short letter. And then, but I didn't mail it right away. And then the next day I said, oh, I'm going to add to it. And then I ended up not sending it to her at the end of the summer. And as a nine-year-old, I actually mailed a 40-page letter to somebody. Really. And you know, that was back in the days before everybody had a copier in their house. And I'm really sorry because I don't have a copy of it. I would love to go back and see what nine-year-old Pamela thought was so important, you know. The, The roots go deep here. Your story resonates with me. Because as a youngster, I always, I loved writing and, and acting it out. I was more into the script thing. I would write the story and then I'm like, let's put this on as a play. So, you know, even then, and I had 20 nieces and nephews, you know, growing up. So I had a built-in cast 
and traveled that path. But uh, a captive audience. Yes, yeah, <laughs> right. Absolutely. And, you know, it's something how you're growing up, how you just took things as, well, this is what we do as a family. I thought everybody I, I'm one of 10 and I thought everybody after Sunday dinner, I'm Italian. So after the Sunday dinner, we would all go to the living room and sit and we would put on a show of some sort or another. You know, so I remember doing Come Softly to Me with the Fleetwoods. I'm definitely aging myself. Come softly, darling. And we had this whole little routine. And I'm like, doesn't everybody do shows on Sunday? Of course. <laughs> we we didn't. So I must have been deprived once I grew up. But no, no. But, you know, it was. I grew up in a Jewish family. In fact, my first few boys, in fact, my father, my son's father is Italian. I'm sort of Italian. Anyway, uh, I grew up in a family that believed that there were no delineations when it came to family. There's no such thing as this family member has and this family member has not. Either everybody has or nobody has. And I think that I was lucky in that because, number one, sharing is just genetic with me. But also that close-knit feeling, there was no such thing as, well, you know, my immediate family is just mom, dad, and my brother. The immediate family is mom and dad and my brother and both grandmas and both grandpas and then daddy's, you know, brother and sister and then their kids. It was all, and there's something, it's inspirational. And although I don't think I saw it as inspirational, it to me, like your shows, like your Sunday shows, it was just normal, but it was material for me to write about. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? I didn't mean it to sound like that. Doesn't sound terrible. Well, it <laughs> sounds as you bring up another important point about being taught from the start about being inclusive. It wasn't that person was more important than another person. And that sets the groundwork for where we want to go as adults. I just read in the paper this morning, it's really disturbing, about the rise of anti-Semitism. Mm. Uh, I'm here on Long Island, and we uh, have been accosted by flyers, anti-Semitic flyers that are being dropped off in people's driveways. And the article today talked about the rise of anti-Semitism. And has this been another artistic path that you might want to address? You know, it's funny. I grew up in Queens, so attached to the island, but we didn't consider ourselves Long Island. It was, you know, yeah. it was one of the boroughs. And I did not experience it when I was in grade school or high school. In high school, you know, that was, that was the time when, when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And yeah, we did not consider ourselves separate groups in high school. It was the, just this conglomerate of different races and religions, and, and everybody was just one huge group. And we got, and I know that this is pretty amazing because now that I think about it, but we actually got some kind of an award one year for the least amount of violence in a New York City school. I mean, isn't that crazy that there'd even be something, some kind of recognition about that? But when Martin Luther King was assassinated, there was violence all over the city and in a lot of the schools. And we did not. There was some graffiti 
put on the outside of our school, but that was from someone who came from outside of our school. But there wasn't any of that. So I didn't really experience anti-Semitism until I moved to Connecticut. And in Connecticut, because it's not such a huge mix, there are Jewish communities in Connecticut, but we didn't move into specifically a Jewish community. So uh, I went to one of the branches of Yukon for about half a semester, Uh, the one down in Groton, Connecticut. Yeah. And I only lasted half a semester. I was desperately missing New York City. So I was just I was just miserable about everything. But I was verbally assaulted more than once. And it was shocking to me because I knew what it was. But I hadn't experienced it personally before. So that isn't really so much what has affected my my writing, influenced my writing. I feel some kind of an affinity toward people who are quote unquote different. And by different, it can be that a child is exceptionally shy and therefore doesn't speak very much. Or those were the days when there were still kids with polio and walking around with braces on their legs. I remember my mom stopped the car one time because two kids were trying to beat up this poor child on the street who had braces and crutches. See, I believe that there are three demographics in society that are the easiest targets. The very, very old, the very, very young, and the mentally ill. Those are the three groups that don't have a voice or very often don't have a voice. And in our society, whether you like it or not, if you don't have a voice, you have no power. And if you have no power, then you are right up there ripe to be a target. And the part of me that was raised amongst this big family that believed in sharing and believed in fairness, that's what I derive my sense of art from. Yeah. I write about that and I and I I'm not not in a preachy way just those are my characters. I recently did a a little video for uh Instagram uh for International Women's Day and I talked about the difference between equality and equity. Oh, you know, under 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, this is what we do. It's about the belief in fairness. How did that fairness, that drive, that the very core of who you are transcend to become pieces of art? Well, in the case of my documentary film, that's The Last Will and Embezzlement, unfortunately, when I was growing up, Okay, let's step back before the unfortunate part. When I was growing up, all of the parents were going to retire and move to Florida and then buy places that were too small for their kids to move back into. That was the goal, right? And so Florida and California, I think mostly, became this mecca for retirement. And eventually, as the populations aged in place, it also became a hunting ground. Because as people aged in place, they became more vulnerable. Wow. And so 
I grew up watching this phenomenon happen. So my parents moved to Florida, of course. You know, it's almost like, you know, the Jewish police come down the street in Laurelton. You gotta move to Florida, you know? <laughs> One of the problems is that there are there are laws on the books there for abusing somebody over the age of, and I don't remember in Connecticut it's 62. I don't remember in Florida if it's 60, 65, whatever. But just because there is a law on the books doesn't necessarily mean that it's enforced or that the police even know that it exists. And so the number of the quantity of incidents of physical, mental, and financial exploitation and abuse in Florida, it was so enormous it happened to my parents. That's what Last Will and Embezzlement is about. It's about my parents and other people who are abused financially, but it started because of my parents. When I went to the police and reported it, the first reaction was, well, you know, ma'am, this kind of thing happens all the time. Do something about it. <laughs> Except that it was a large amount of money. I mean, for us, it wasn't millions. And that was the problem. It happens so often that if it's under a million dollars, it's not sexy anymore. It's commonplace. And even though in my family's situation, it was six figures, it wasn't seven figures, and they literally would not do anything about it. And when my mom unfortunately died as a direct result of this, and that's a long story, but when I told the police this, she was 89 years old. And when I told the cop, this, he said, well, she was going to die soon anyway. That was his entire reaction. So it, when you have that kind of an attitude, I was telling them what the law was. I read their, their general statutes. I said, here's your law, chapter and verse. And they kind of looked at me like, wow, <laughs> like they didn't even know it existed. And I don't think they like being shown up. Nobody likes being shown up. So in fact, I remember telling them that my dad's gun was missing because I thought, well, maybe that'll get them excited, you know, a missing gun. And they didn't even care about that. I hope things have changed, but uh, Florida- Not to my knowledge. Yes. And so you wrangled Mickey Rooney. I did not wrangle. It was the weirdest thing. <laughs> Somebody had said, oh, Pamela, you know, you really need to make a documentary out of this. I never made a movie in my life. And my first movie had Mickey Rooney in it. In fact, I never even thought about making a movie in my life. I'm a writer, not a filmmaker, or at least back then. Yeah. But someone said, oh, you know, it happened to Mickey Rooney. He testified before Congress about this very thing just a few years ago. So I found his agent in Manhattan and I called him. You know, I told him what I was going to do. I was going to be making this movie. And he told me that I needed to put, because I was, I was totally clueless. He said, well, you, you can't just do this on the phone. You need to send me a letter and you need to make an offer. And I said, how do I do this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, said, I don't even know how much to offer. I don't know. What to do. <laughs> and he was probably the last agent in all of New York City that did not have email. So I had to literally write him a letter, mail it. Yeah. And it. within a couple of days, he called me back. I had included a synopsis of the planned movie. And within a couple of days, he called me back. He said, Mickey loves your project. He'd love to be in your movie. And I made him say it over three times because I didn't believe him. <laughs> you know, I mean, Mickey Rooney. Really? 
Yeah. And so, and so I, I got, I did get to meet him. He was interviewed three times for the film, two times by professional, you know, we had a camera crew and, and one time by me and we still had a professional camera crew, but I was the interviewer and he was such a gas. He was so charming. I absolutely loved it. They were trying to get the, the mic on his shirt and they were trying to tuck in the wire and he was getting irritated with them. You know, just go away, go away. You know, don't you know who I am? I'm Mickey Rooney. He didn't say that, but I mean, you could see in his eyes. But then on the other hand, you sit down and you start talking to him about vaudeville. At the time that he was alive, he was the last survivor. He and Betty White were the last two surviving actors from the vaudeville period. And then, you know, getting all these stories of his past, his lawyer told me to shut up and get on with the movie. What were some of the uh, outcomes of this movie? We've sold an awful lot of copies, but like, it's not like Harry Potter. It's not, it wasn't a big hit like that, you know, you know, like five, 40 million or 50 million or whatever copies sold or a hundred million or whatever. God bless JK Rowling. It's sold in what we call the scholastic market, which is anything commercial. So it doesn't have to be schools, but you know, district attorneys and, and anybody, financial planners or senior centers, anybody who is a service provider or could be a service provider to potential victims or victims and That's use the film to raise awareness to raise awareness. But also there's a part in the film where Mickey said, if it can happen to me, to Mickey Rooney, it could happen to anybody. And I got a letter from a district attorney in Colorado, Denver, if I'm not mistaken. And he said that he had a victim in his office, but she didn't want to speak about it. It's humiliating and it's frightening. If, if your perpetrator is a family member or a neighbor or just somebody who's bigger than you, it can be really scary. Or if the senior thinks it's my fault, I let somebody abuse me, they're going to stick me in a nursing home somewhere. So a lot of times they won't even admit it and they won't talk about it. They don't he want to play the, the movie for her. And it got to the end and it said, if it can happen to Mickey Rooney, it can happen to anyone. And then she was finally willing to tell him what happened. The, the bottom line was they arrested the son of a so-and-so. Before we even set up this date, when we had that our little telephone chat, wouldn't you know, talk about synchronicity. The following week was a huge two-page article on Newsday about advocates, elderly need more help. And it said it said between... 2011, this is New York State and Long Island, between 2011 and 2021, the state's population of people 65 and older grew 31% from 2.6 million in 2011 to nearly 35 million. No, I don't have my glasses on. 3.5 million in 2021. And the state's total population in 2021 was estimated at 19.84 million. So it backs up your point. You know, when you've got this many senior citizens in a certain area, it's low-hanging fruit for these scammers. And to your point also, it can happen to Mickey Rooney, it can happen to anybody. A lot of people feel stupid. How stupid could I be? Just two weeks ago, a colleague director, brilliant woman, some scammer took $8,000 out of their account. She said, Fran, it's been hell. They're working with the FBI, with the police. They're going for their credit cards. It's very, very scary. 
And I think what's so important about your work, Pamela, which is one of the reasons why I reached out to you among many others, is that we have to be vigilant. Yes, we have to be vigilant. And we also have to remember that, well, first of all, my generation, your generation, baby boomers, we are becoming seniors at a rate of what, 11,000 a day or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, baby boomers are the people who were born between 1946 and 1964. So I'm at the 1964 end. So there are more and more of us and it's not just the older people, even the boomers and the, the what they call the greatest generation, who are affected by it, if they're the ones who are directly affected by it. But I have a son and I have a granddaughter and the person who took all that money. I mean, I don't mean to sound mercenary, but the person who took all that money from my parents. And yeah. so it won't go to eventually go to my granddaughter. It's going to his granddaughter. Yeah. So, and and, and I, like I said, I don't mean it to sound mercenary, but it's a fact of life. If someone steals from you, even when the courts do help, because it is a crime, but even when the courts do help, they don't get the money back for you. Even if you go to court, to civil court, and you get a ruling in your favor, and the judge and the jury say, okay, Mr. So-and-so, you owe this family however much money. That's a judgment, but they don't help you collect. So once the money is gone, pretty much it's gone. Has the film created some kind of advocacy programs and grassroots efforts? Any Anything that's like happening? To, because it's like, like I said, this article... And it was just like two weeks ago. And as long as there are old people and thieves, I don't think it's ever going to stop. But when I hear things like, I mean, I did a presentation. One of my earlier presentations was at Holy Cross. And Cornell, the professor who ordered, or the woman who ordered the, the book and the DVD, the documentary from Cornell Law School, is an adjunct professor. She teaches a law class there. So I know that she is going to be using that film to teach her students. And it was a hurry up and do this. She was Googling around and she found the film and I had to uh, express it yesterday first thing in the morning because she's teaching oh, on Monday. Oh, so this is something recent. This, this is-, is something very recent that she is teaching the people in her class about the exploitation of the elderly. Oh, to me, that's yeah. the advocacy right there. There you go. So how did you make the leap from that to your... Next project. And you know, Pamela, what drives you? It doesn't matter what age. For me, I'm I'm constantly looking at ways to reinvent myself and to push the envelope and to see, I'm going to try that. Let's see what happens. How does that transcend? Finding Emmaus is my first novel. And I actually, that was published in 2009. It's about the treatment and mistreatment of the mentally ill over the course of about 350 years and how society marginalizes people who are different, meaning mentally ill, and then penalizes them for the marginalization that they heaped on their shoulders, calling them damaged goods. When I wrote Finding Emmaus, I guess I would have to say I was driven, but I did not make a conscious decision. I dropped everything And I mean, dropped everything. My poor dogs were standing there at the front door with their little legs crossed. I dropped (laughs) everything and 
for five months, I did nothing but write. It took me five months to write. And actually, I wrote a thousand pages. Then when it finally got put together as a novel, it was 437. But it was like the book was writing itself. I couldn't not write. It was the strangest thing, really. I can relate to that because I'm venturing as a novice author now on young playwrights work with Stephen Sondheim's organization. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. And I can't mention the title because that might deter getting a publisher. You know, I've always been a writer. I'm more on the performing end of, you know, I like being in front of that audience. And like you said, I started to write this and it just wrote itself. Everything just came out. But now I'm doing the hard knocks work of the book proposal and getting that, all of that done. But going go back to what you were saying. I'm sorry, I, I interrupted. Oh, no, 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 please. I'm, I, I, you know, I am really enjoying this. I am so enjoying this. I, <laughs> I don't, do, not, do not apologize. I mean, I didn't really get on here just to hear the sound of my own voice. I hear it all the time anyway. So. <laughs> you know, well, I, I talk, that's how I write. I, I talk to myself. You, yes. And, yeah. and I do it no matter where I am yeah. so that, I finally started putting one of those Bluetooth things in my ear. So yeah. when I'm walking in the grocery store and I'm talking to myself, you know, people would look at me and then they'll, then they'll see, you know, I'm, you know, <laughs> well, not only will they stop interrupting me, but they'll apologize. <laughs> <laughs> but let's go back to the, the movie and just the, how the, how the script just wrote itself. Which one are you talking about? Amaya. Oh, finding Amaya is the screenplay. Well, the book wrote itself, the screenplay, I'd never written one before. I mean, I worked on Last Will and Embezzlement, so I had to put everything together that the narrator was going to say. And I've seen what a play looks like. And it was pretty much, do I want to have somebody else do this for me? Or do I want to try my hand at it myself? Because nobody knows the story better than me. You got it. And I was actually inspired. Did you see The Gilded Age? It was a series on PBS, was it? Yes, yes. And it inspired me to take Finding Emmaus and make it a multi-episode series, which is what I submitted to the film festivals, but is the pilot, episode one. It got accepted to all these different film festivals. You know, it's like burning up Facebook here, girl. I'm like, there's no stopping this woman. And that's one of the, the things that I admire about you is that when we follow the gift that we have and we give voice to it in turn we give voice to others that's my belief yes i think that sometimes it's hard to say you know things because i don't want people to think i'm so stuck on myself but i think that when i go out and do this especially like like getting my masters at almost 70 years old i hope that i'm inspiring other women just the way that actress you were saying, I hope that I'm telling other women that without actually saying it, that there are no limits. There are absolutely no limits except the ones that you place on yourself. I never wrote, I never actually wrote a screenplay before. And now, you know, all these film festivals think I'm such a great writer. So my mom used to tell me anytime I was afraid to try something like when I was going to build my first house, You know, she said, you think the contractor was born knowing how to swing a hammer? Oh, I guess not. (laughs) So I figure, you know, if all these other writers, there was always a first time for every single one of them. So I just. Why not me? 
Why exactly? Why not me? me? And the way that I started my introduction to today's show was not feeling guilty about starting so late. It's like, why did I start now? I had to go through. I taught for over 30 years. I got my PhD, NYU. And then that was when I got introduced to Stephen Sondheim and the Young Playwrights Festival. And you look back on things and you say, you know what I want? What I really, really want? I want to take my voice and use it. Talk about how the Young Playwrights Festival transformed young people's lives and gave us new playwrights for the American theater, which is how that all evolved. All right. So I want you to tell me what you want, what you really, really want. What I really, really want is for somebody to put on my gravestone, Pamela S.K. Glasner lived and it mattered. That's what I want. I love it. We're just going to end right there. (laughs) It just says it all. Thank you again, Pamela. And I put clips of both of your films on the podcast blog so people can find it. Thank you. More about your work. So when you have your red carpet, okay. I'll come back. I have the perfect dress to wear. Uh, so I'm expecting to be there. When Can you- I do a little shameless self-promotion? Please do. Lastwillandembezzlement.com is for the DVD. And the book is, it's Finding Emmaus, E-M-M-A-U-S. And it's by Pamela S.K. Glasner. And that's on Amazon. And it's part of the Lodestar uh, series. And that's L-O-D. E S T A R R E. And the reason I say that is because that's the website for finding Emmaus. It's lodestar.com. It's, all, it's on the, the blog. Um, oh, there you yeah. go. Yeah. So people want to find out it'll be there. And I know where to find you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So we are going to stay connected. I can't wait to see what you do now. Thank you so much Thanks, for the time. I really appreciate it. You betcha. Find out more about what Fran is up to. Go to her website at firstonlinewithfran.com. This program was produced by Mark Hare Media and recorded at Wheat Studio Productions.